Shall we pray? Our Father, we would ask that you would give us an understanding into your word, a greater conviction of the truth of it, that we would see it and apply it to our life even in the week to come, that we would meditate upon these things. Father, we pray that your spirit will apply your word to us tonight. We would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I would invite you to open uh, not only to Romans 7, which we'll be reading in a few minutes, but also as we continue in this series on the Westminster Confession, we've come to chapter 19, and it's printed in your order of worship tonight, or it's in the back of the hymnal, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross has inaugurated the new covenant and his blood has affected the whole Old Testament. And we saw last time how the work of Jesus Christ has removed the ceremonial law because he fulfilled it completely. The ceremonial law had two directions. It had an upward focus, the people's relationship to God. So all the laws relating to sacrifices and priesthood and worship, all of those were pointing to the finished work of Jesus Christ and they are all gone. The other focus of the ceremonial law was outward, all the kosher laws that kept the Jew from the Gentile, because God's people were to be kept separate from the nations so that there would be the line of Eve and the Messiah to come. And those laws have all passed. So has the civil law, the laws that were given to Israel as a nation. What were the laws and what were the punishment of breaking the laws? Those laws have all ceased now. And even the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, has been affected by the work of Jesus Christ. Section 6 begins, Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works by which they are justified or condemned. And that's because Christ has taken our place for not only the breaking of the law, but also for the keeping of the law. He's offered perfect obedience in our behalf. So therefore, to all those in Christ Jesus, all those who have received him as Lord and Savior, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The work of Jesus Christ has affected the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament law. He's removed the ceremonial, removed the civil, and he's even obeyed the moral law on behalf of his people. So that the moral law is there for us, but not to learn earn any merit, not to earn any approval before God. We're not under probation and how we keep the moral law. So that raises the question, if Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10, then what's the purpose of the law? What's the benefit for us? And the Westminster picks up that question now tonight in sections five and six. Here's, here's the benefit of the law for the believer. Follow as we read sections 5 and 6. The moral law binds all people at all times to obedience, both those who are justified and those who are not. The obligation to obey the moral law is not because, only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. In the gospel, Christ in no way dissolves this obligation, but greatly strengthens it. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works by which they are justified or condemned, nevertheless, the law is of great use to them as well as to others. By informing them as a rule of life, both of the will of God and of their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. It also reveals to them the sinful pollutions of their nature, heart, and lives. And therefore, when they examine themselves in the light of the law, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of their sin. 
together with a clearer view of their need of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. The law is also useful to the regenerate because by forbidding sin, it restrains their corruptions. By its threats, it shows them what their sins deserve, and although they are free from the curse threatened in the law, it shows the afflictions that they may expect because of them in this life. The promises of the law likewise show to the regenerate God's approval of obedience and the blessings they may expect as they obey the law, although these blessings are not due to them by the law as a covenant of works. Therefore, the fact that a man does good rather than evil, because the law encourages good and discourages evil, is no evidence that the man is under the law rather than under grace. So let's unpack these five ways in which the law law is still of great value for the believer. The moral law of God reveals the will of God. It reveals the knowledge of our sin, restrains our sin, rewards obedience, and reveals Christ. Why do we need the law of God, the moral law? Because, first of all, God's moral law reveals the will of God. Second sentence in section 6, by informing them as a rule of life, both of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. Romans 7.12, so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Romans 7.22, I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. 1 Corinthians 7, 19, what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God, or the New Revised translates it, obeying the commands of God is everything. So when Christ has come and taken our place in the obedience of the law, taken the punishment that our sins deserve, we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, and then the law becomes a delight because it's the light for our path. So when you think of the moral law of God as revealing the will of God, you should think like a GPS, you think like a map. That's the image that should come to mind. We want to know what pleases God. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. So God's word is, is like a, a, a road map, a GPS to guide us through the unknowns, through the dangerous territory, to keep us from getting lost, taking the wrong exit getting into a back detour, into places of sorrow and self-destruction, and to show us the way back. God's law is the map. It's the light for our path. Just as following a GPS doesn't make you a legalist, so too following God's word as the path, the light for our path doesn't make you a legalist. It gives you wisdom. Sadly today, though, many evangelical churches, if you place any emphasis on the law of God, it's you will be called you're a legalist. Legalism is to add man-made laws to equal authority to God's law, or even to use God's law to begin to turn it around that I'm going to earn merit and points with God. Both of those forms of legalism are condemned in Scripture. But legalism does not mean to get serious about obedience. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? No, God's law is given to teach us the commandments of God are his will for our lives. Samuel Bolton said, the law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified, and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty. 
being justified. The purpose of the law is GPS. It's God's will for our life. The second reason why we need God's moral law is it reveals the knowledge of our sin. The third sentence there in section six, it also reveals to them the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives. And therefore, when they examine themselves in the light of the law, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of their sin, together with a clearer view of their need of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Here, the image you want to think of is a mirror. God's law is not only like a GPS, God's law is like a a mirror. And we need that not only for evangelism, speaking to the unsaved, but we need it for our own Christian lives. The law reveals sin is a necessary part of evangelism. Paul would write Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes a knowledge of sin. God's law is like that mirror or magnifying glass. It doesn't do anything to the object. Magnifying glass, you look under it, you see a little flea. It doesn't make the flea two feet long. It just shows you more clearly what it is. And so too with God's word. God's word is showing us our sinful hearts. God's law was not given to Old Testament Israel as a way for them to be saved, as if they could be saved by keeping the law. The exact opposite. It was given to them to show them that they could not keep the law. It was given to them to despair of law-keeping, to despair of ever meriting righteousness in themselves, to be ready to receive Christ, the only one who can obey the law for us. And that's the same for us. It's always been that way. The law was never given to Old Testament or to us as a way to obtain eternal life. Look at Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul's writing here from his personal experience. If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. Life was just fine. I was going along as a happy rabbi and a happy Pharisee and everything was fine. I thought I was a good person and I was meriting eternal life. I kept the law better than anybody. And then in God's time, the Holy Spirit applied the 10th commandment to him. You shall not covet. And he said everything fell apart. It was like a knife went into him and just cut him open. Or the spotlight shone on him and he could see his sin finally because the work of God exposed his sin. And Paul said then, the commandment's death to me. 
No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's a Copernican revolution for a rabbi, for a Pharisee. You can't become righteous through obeying the law. You can't merit it. Rather, the function of the law is to show you your sin so that you come to Christ. Martin Luther said the principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so to come to that blessed seed, Christ. The law revealed to Paul, Paul, you're a sinner. You need a savior. You need someone to redeem you and to forgive you. And that function still has the same effect in bringing people to Christ and salvation. It's important to have that as part of as we share the gospel with those who are outside of Christ. So often the message in evangelism can get packaged simply as trying to sell a sinner that he's one of sweepstakes and all he has to do is cash in on all the benefits that God will give him and has a wonderful plan for your life. And Yes, God has benefits and blessings for believers in Christ, but that's not how the Bible presents the gospel. The Bible presents the gospel as you're in, you stand guilty before a holy God. You need to be reconciled to God. Who's going to pay for your debt? Who's going to pay for your sin? Who's going to cleanse you? from all your unrighteousness. The good news is Christ has come. That's exactly what he's done. So that all who put their faith in him will be forgiven and counted righteous and justified by faith alone. The law to expose sin is a necessary part of evangelism and that whole discussion as you present the gospel to family and to friends. Does that function still continue after we put our faith in Christ? Does the law still show us our sins? Absolutely. James 1, 23, if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he, he does. Isn't that true of your life? Our whole life, God's word continues by the Spirit to show us, you need to deal with this, you need to repent of this, you need to clean this room, you need to go into those areas of your life and deal with them, confessing those sins to God and to others. And praise God that he does that. Luther said the whole of the Christian life is repentance. And that's because the the law of God continues to show us the knowledge of our sin as a mirror. Why do we need the law of God? Well, we need it like a GPS to show us the will of God and how we should walk, how we should live. We need the law of God as a mirror to show us the knowledge of our sin, the dirt that's on our face, so that we go and wash. And third, God's moral law, we need it because it restrains our sin. There's a benefit here for unbelievers, all society, as well as for the believer. And the fourth sentence The law is also useful to the regenerate because by forbidding sin, it restrains their corruptions. By its threats, it shows them what their sins deserve. And although they are free from the curse threatened in the law, it shows the afflictions that they may expect because of them in this life. So here you want to think the law of God is like chains. Luther used that illustration of 
holding back a, a madman that's gone insane. You, you, you wrap him in chains. It doesn't do anything to the man. It doesn't heal the man. But it holds him back. And God's law in this sense of restraining evil has a function both in society externally as well as to the believer internally. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11 is a passage that shows us that the governments of this world are to uphold God's moral law. It's written on the hearts of all people and governments are to uphold. There's to be a restraining use in the government's protecting the law of God so that people are afraid of the consequences of breaking the law. It secures the civil order. It protects the righteous from the unjust. All the reformers were agreed on this, that there's a function of God's law to restrain sin in society. John Calvin wrote, the function of the law is this, at least by fear of punishment or restrain certain men who are untouched by any care for what is just and right unless compelled by the hearing of the higher, dire threats of the law. You can see the reverse today, can't you? When our government does not uphold God's moral law, we're fulfilling Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And we should pray for our government, that there would be those that with courage to uphold God's law and that there would be laws that protect and there's consequences for breaking God's moral law to hold back sin, chains. (laughs) But there's another benefit that comes to God's moral law for the believer, and we read that in 1 Corinthians 10. And that is for the believer, it also restrains our sin in a good way, We read 1 Corinthians 10. These are examples to us of God's Old Testament church and how they sinned and there were consequences for their sin. And we read that and we're reminded that God's law has teeth in it. There are consequences for disobedience. And so it's not only restraining unbelievers in society, but it holds back um, our own sinful hearts. We don't want to grieve the Lord. We, we know that there will be consequences for disobedience. The Lord must discipline his children. And so our, ours is a response internally. We don't want to fall into sin. It's, it's a safeguard against license. Sin hasn't changed. And we know that we still deal with sin. And when we hear God's law and we hear there's, there's judgment and discipline for God's law, it pulls us back. It's another reason why, as believers, we need to be continually reading God's word, meditating on God's word, being under the hearing of the word. God's moral law is for our good. It's like a GPS that reveals the will of God. It's like a mirror that reveals the knowledge of our sin. It's like chains that holds back a crazy person, restrains our sin. There's a fourth use. And that's in the fifth sentence, God's moral law points to the gracious promises of God. Or if you need another R, God's moral law rewards obedience. The promises of the law likewise show to the regenerate God's approval of obedience and the blessings that they may expect as they obey the law. Although these blessings are not due to them by the law as a covenant of works, in other words, you didn't merit all these blessings, Therefore, the fact that a man does good rather than evil, because the law encourages good and 
discourages evil is no evidence that the man is under the law rather than under grace. God will bless his people that obey his word. That's Psalm 1. The apostle did this in Ephesians 6 too. You remember when he quoted the fourth commandment, children obey your parents in the Lord. What's he say in Ephesians? This is a, this is a commandment with a promise. Matthew 5, blessed are the gentle, they shall inherit the earth. There's a reward, there's blessing. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 37, 11. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward, Psalm 19, 11. God's moral law is showing us that he will reward obedience. And there's a fifth use of the law. God's moral law reveals the will of God, reveals the knowledge of our sin, restrains our sin, rewards obedience. And fifth, the, God's moral law reveals Christ. It's a beautiful response in the larger catechism, question 97. What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate, to believers? And the answer Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral laws of covenant of works, so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned, yet because of the general uses thereof common with them all men, it's of special use to the believer. How? To show them how much they're bound to Christ for his fulfilling of it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. Rightly used, the law of God will bring us to Christ and cause us to see how precious is the work of Christ, how much we need him. Jesus Christ is the lawgiver. We believe that he is the one on Mount Sinai that gave the Ten Commandments. Christ is also taken our place as the lawbreaker, that's what he did when he went to the cross. He was sinless, and yet he be, was made sin for us who knew no sin. He stood there as the full lawbreaker, taking the full curse of the broken law and all of its bitterness to its utmost extent. And he took the full punishment for every sin of every believer for all time. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. He's the lawgiver. He stood in our place as the lawbreaker, and he is the law keeper. Ferguson said, Christ, the lawmaker, became the law keeper, and then took our place in condemnation as though he were the lawbreaker. Christ is also the law keeper in your place, and that's the basis of the new covenant. We realize we can't get past the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. How will we ever stand before a holy God based on our obedience? We can't. We can't possibly. But Jesus Christ has come and he's perfectly obeyed the law on behalf of his people. So that when you put your faith in Christ, his righteousness is credited to you. His obedience is what you stand under. His obedience is the surety of the new covenant. We need to remember that salvation was not obtained by the setting aside of God's law but by its fulfillment on your behalf by another. We inherit salvation by grace alone, 
but it had to be won for us through the obedience of Jesus Christ. We often say we're, we're not saved by works. And if you're focusing on our works and our merit, that's correct. But salvation is by work. It's by Christ's work. We receive salvation by faith alone in his work on our behalf. Salvation is by works, but it's Christ's works done, his obedience, his suffering on our behalf. Paul would write Philippians 3.9, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. We need the moral law because rightly used, it reveals Christ. As the law giver, dying in our place as the law breaker, and also taking our place as the law keeper. That's why section seven of the confession can conclude with the harmony of grace and law. These uses of the law do not conflict with the grace of the gospel, but are in complete harmony with it. For it's the spirit of Christ who subdues and enables the will of man to do freely and cheerfully those things which the will of God revealed in the law requires. The Holy Spirit has been given to believers so that we are given both the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. Part of the benefits of being in the new covenant is the fulfillment of Jeremiah. We read in Hebrews 8, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. In the Old Testament, you remember when a king came to the throne, what was one of the first things he had to do that first year as a king? He had to copy by hand the whole Old Testament law so that he would know it, so that he would govern by it. In the New Covenant, it's the Holy Spirit that takes God's law and writes it on our heart so that we will know it, so we will love it, so we will want to obey it. The new covenant is not less law. It's not different law than the Ten Commandments. But in the new covenant, we have a greater ability, a greater love to keep God's law because the Holy Spirit has promised to write it on our hearts. Another connection is where were the original Ten Commandments, the ones that were written on stone on Mount Sinai? Remember where they were kept? In the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. Where are they kept now? They're kept in the heart of the believer as God has written them on our hearts. And so today, if you don't delight in the law of God, when our hearts are hard against obeying his word, then the prayer is, Lord, give me a new heart. Take away the heart of stone and give me a heart to love you and to follow you. And God has promised all that draw near to him, he will draw near to you. R.C. Sproul said, when is the last time you heard a Christian pour out his heart with affection for the law of God? How foreign that is to us. If you do not delight in the law of God, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're a regenerate person. Don't think that the gospel which frees you from the curse of the law is a license for you to despise the law or to ignore the law. And Horton writes in his book, The Gospel-Driven Life, 
Christians still hear the law and are called to obey it as the reasonable service of their adoption as royal heirs, not as the condition of their receiving it. One becomes a beneficiary of the estate on the basis of another family member's achievements received through faith. And then follows the house rules, not as a way of gaining or keeping the inheritance, but as a proper way of responding to our new surroundings in a new family. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you that everywhere in the scripture it points to Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for his obedience, which is the surety of the new covenant. We pray for all who partake in the Lord's Supper tonight that they might have this assurance ringing in their hearts that it's Christ's righteousness and Christ's obedience that we stand in in the new covenant. We ask your blessing, our Father, upon the hearing of your word and upon our sacrament as we now come to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.